0: Before I get going, I just want to say thank you very much to PHM Annaline International to in particular for hosting this. Just as a way of introduction, a number of us have been meeting as part of the C19 People's Coalition Health Group, and it's been a really um, great experience in terms of getting together as different comrades in South Africa working in public health and uh, human rights. And in particular, we have a a focal group dealing with sexual and reproductive justice. And this is really important because often in South Africa, we have seen a vertical lens in addressing issues, you know, either dealing with HIV or dealing with um, a particular illness and not seeing the whole complete person. And um, it's really good, and perhaps for the first time, that we've seen such a close working together across sectors, um, embracing a whole range of issues. Now, I just want to go back to the concept of sexual and reproductive justice and acknowledge Loretta Ross, um, who conceptualized this concept with colleagues in 1994, um, and this Concept framework takes the concept of reproductive health and rights further by looking at the options of people to choose to have children or choose not to have children. And you'll notice within our framework, we have folks here within our our working group who are sex workers, um, who are queer folks and who are providers as well of health services. And coming out of South Africa, we have a history, a legacy of population control and also a clear uh, um, enforcement of who should have children, who believed they should have children and who should not have children. And so I think that this is um, incredibly important as one um, uh, looks at the opportunities we have in taking this this um, concept forward and domesticating this in South Africa and in the region. I'm going to ask folks just in terms of our engagement. Um, I, I think um, to mute your mic and to turn off your video um, just so that we can save bandwidth. Um, if you we're going to start off with speakers um, presenting and talking. Um, a little bit about the experience and then we're going to have a time of questioning um, and discussion. And then after that, um, uh, Sister Judy will close up for us. Um, but I, um, I also would encourage folks, if you want to um, uh, start listing any questions or things that you're interested in, in the, the chat box. Um, and so that when we do come to the, the time to talk amongst each other, those have been outlined. But also, if I could say very, very clearly and underscore that we, we are hosting a brave space. This is a space where we are informed by the concept of sexual and reproductive justice. And as comrades together, we support the rights of people to have access to services um, to either have children or choose not to have children. We support the rights of sex workers um, and how they articulate their needs. And also we support um, folks of all sexual orientations and gender identities. And we're also very, very grateful to have health providers with us, um, to folks from the coalface after four o'clock, after a full day's work. So without um, taking up any more time, I'm going to hand over first to um Comrade Dudu from SWET to tell us about how her work has been affected and issues affecting sex workers.
1: Hi everyone, um thank you Marianne and thank you for C one nineteen to give us an opportunity. Um, I will start uh sharing what um sex workers are going through for during this time of COVID-19 since lockdown. um, This uh, lockdown affects sex workers a lot uh, in terms of, uh, as we know that sex work in South Africa is criminalized and uh, they were not, even government when they uh, announcing all the relief that it's taken out there, sex workers was not mentioned and they didn't put either of the relief funds that can sex workers benefits on. It's affecting sex workers um, because they're making money to make a living and put food on the table. So it affects sex workers financially. There was a lot of 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 the changing in their lifestyle. Um, because of sex workers are break sex workers are mothers sex workers. Some of the sex workers they are moving from another province to another province, and they are they are renting their houses. Some of the sex workers are working in brothels. So there was a lot of changing lifestyles of sex workers. There is a. It was too much challenging in uh, financial for them. It's also damaging for them uh, the ways of living in, in in this country in terms of health also they were affected because some of the six workers they couldn't able to go to fetch their medication do that some they going they use transport money and the system uh, the way that the system was it during the, the lockdown was too full and not able to make sex workers assess treatment and the, some of the sex workers are staying are homeless they 've been removed from the streets to 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 put in different places where they were stigmatized, and and there was a lot that was happening the the, the lockdown and the COVID nineteen. It was yes, it was a disaster. But I find that government was was supposed to should be putting place also to include sex workers, like every each workers and business um, business uh, in South Africa. Uh, sex workers. Um, even now, uh, we doing uh, collecting some of this uh, of the of their experiences. Right. We find that even in their mentally, uh, they are very disturbance. They are not coping. They are, um, they are struggling to put food on the table for their children because they are not making any money. Um, They need some services uh, that they need. They need support, but there is no any structure without sweat and Mothers for the Future in on only structure that it's only looking for sex workers without any resources in terms of financial, we're not able to support them financially. Um, There is a lot that's happening. Sex workers, some of the sex workers, they were kicking out by their landlords And they're not able to go to shelters. Shelters, they were full. And some of the sex workers, we have to... Uh, ask their friends to keep them, but you cannot place the sex worker to their friends without food. We need to put food for them. And some of the sex workers, they were pregnant. They do not know. Some most of the sex workers, they were panicking. Uh, sex workers, they were giving birth. Some they didn't have even plan to buy some clothes for children, and 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 also they couldn't able to contacts their families those they couldn't move so there was very limited of movement to sex workers There was lots and there was lots of of of, of gender based violence by gender based violence The sex workers they were experienced during the lockdown from the police from the metropolis and also not only from that but also they experiencing the changes those sex workers who staying in the community because they normally not ask from the neighbors but uh, they were supposed now to ask from the neighbors to ask things that they need also their families to ask from the families and there is a lot of changing uh, in, in their situation in terms of 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 the of their relationships there is a lot that is affecting sex workers because they were really, I'm not saying that they were not ready, but uh, everyone was not ready. But I think that uh, government make a big mistake on when they not even to put them in the plan. What I can say for now, um, COVID-19, I'll call it destroyed so many lives of sex workers in in the moment.
0: Thanks very much, Dudu. Um, Can you please maybe just tell us a little bit more about um, SWEAT and how folks can support you and act in solidarity? Do you have any um, uh, on your website, do you have any materials for people to have a look at, um, donation points?
1: Yes, yes, yes. Oh, so during this COVID-19, because of we didn't have a financial that we can support sex workers, food parcel. So we come up with a, a you, we come up with a backup buddies where people they can donate there. And then we use those, those resources to support sex workers. And we depend on it. We don't have yet beside Tecano that also support M4F matters for the future to support in terms of humanitarian funds that you can support. But now what I can ask is that go to the SWEAT website. That is, uh, they have a, a, call it www.sweat.za. So you can go there and then there's a backup artist and please share as much as you can so that people can donate on it. Then those those funds are using direct to help sex workers during this time of the disaster. And we have M4F, uh, call it um, QuickHeads, and you can go to www.quicket.co.za, Where you donate for mothers, you can donate anything from there. It's not easy for people to drop stuff in different places, but uh, you can donate, and then we use those funds also to support mothers and children uh, to put something on the food uh, on the table for them.
0: Sorry to interrupt, Dudu, but I'm just noticing we've got forty-eight participants, and I'm really excited to see we've got folks, colleagues from Ghana from Kenya, and we've got Marlene Gerber-Fried from um, Boston, who introduced me to the concept of reproductive justice. Lovely to have you, Marlene. Um, I want to just ask if you can explain to people who the mothers are. Um, uh, Nicaragua, we've got somebody. Um, Can you please explain what mothers for the future are and how you organize? Just very briefly, and then I'm going to hand over to Sharon. I understand this is a, a, a way of sex worker who are mothers who organize. Just tell us a little bit more, please.
1: Okay, uh, Mothers for the Future. It's a, it it's a, it was started on 2013. After we've done a, a not a really survey in four provinces, we were looking it specific that what is the need of of a, of, a, of a sex worker as a mother. Then we were looking at the motherhood. We are working direct with uh, um, mothers who doing sex work and plus their children. But also mothers for the future. It's more specific on looking at I am not a sex worker, and it's end there. And I'm not a carrier of or a focus on on HIV. But we were very broader into looking it and um, where sexual reproductive health, education for children of sex workers, children that are affected by by, by HIV for sex workers. Also looking at how can we able to support our children and looking at uh, PMCT uh, mental, all those uh, things that matters for the future are focusing that, but it's the most focusing on motherhood as a sex worker. So, We've grown until we have like four, we have in four provinces properly where we function and all these properties is Johannesburg, Deben and and and, and Western Cape. We have, we create really a safe space where specific that space, it's not look like creative space, but it's a space where the mother's taking a lead and facilitate by themselves, sharing their experiences and their needs, but the space, it's more relaxed in terms of Talking about the issues of their children that's what they face during the growing and what the support they need for their children and also increasing the the, the and also increasing the love between and bonding between the mother and the child because people they also believe that sex workers and also they do not understand that and not knowing that sex workers are mothers. So we will want to highlight and do the awareness to say, I'm a best mom, a sacrifice for my children. So it Matter for the Future is very broad, but also we're looking at, we also support full decriminalization and looking at what criminalization affects our children. In two provinces, we already look uh, having two houses where se- children of workers are uh, kept and keeping, we starting safe houses for 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 children of sex workers. The purpose of those of those houses that we were fighting that sex workers, most of mothers, they were their children are taking away because they they think that are not best mothers or are not. Uh, fit to be mothers. So they remove their children from them. So now we're looking at that to say, no, we love our children even due circumstances, but we don't want to be separated by with our children. And we love our children to know that what we're doing, we're doing for them. So that's why we're having those two houses. Then we have houses that have 14 of children of sex workers. And Johannesburg is 10 for now. And its numbers are increasing. And Hopefully, if people can able to support those houses. For now, we are renting those houses.
0: Great. Thank you so much, Dudu. And I really do think Mothers for the Future is an absolute model of reproductive justice in affirming sex workers to be mothers or parents if they want to, um, and also to choose uh, uh, not to, and guiding them through healthcare options. I'm going to hand over now to Sharon from Triangle.
2: Hi everybody! It's wonderful to see so many people on the call, and um, and as Marion highlighted, uh, being part of the C nineteen Health Coalition, and then of course our um, our sub working group. So um, a Triangle Project is an LGBTIQ plus uh, social justice uh, organization with various program areas. My program area is the health program area. Um, And so um, we relate very much with what Sistudu has been saying and I'm sure that many others who are on this call have experienced the same thing. So the challenges that Triangle faced in the work that we did, particularly in the health program, which was where the main response was coming from initially, initially, uh, was the, and I don't think any of us, wherever we are in the world, could have anticipated uh, the impact that COVID would have on the people that we serve. So we thought we, would, we had things pretty much in place, permits in place to be able to, to continue providing services and doing the work. What we couldn't have predicted was how long this would go on for and the massive demand. So the greatest demand has been on, um, on nutrition, um, on therapeutic services, so on counseling um, and therapy. Um, on medical interventions, on interventions uh, around gender-based violence, um, a a small minority of inter-partner violence, but mainly on people who were locked down for long periods of time with family members um, who were either homophobic or transphobic and in several cases had to remove people uh, along with the Gender-Based Violence Command Centre, Um, to emergency accommodation. Um, Those who who struggled with uh, addictions, with substance abuse, uh, it was highly problematic. Um, Many who we serve um, are are people who um, perhaps have a collision of intersections existing in one person. And I'm well aware that we all do. But I think when we look at at, at things like somebody may be transgender, black, unhomed, a sex worker. Th- there's all sorts of vulnerabilities there. Um, and the most high uh, risk group people uh, and those most vulnerable are also often those at most uh, in most need of care and those that are least likely to seek care. Um, because of all the barriers that we know to healthcare, so uh, we found init- uh, certainly in the initial phases of COVID, that the hospitals, the day clinics, the response was very much geared towards um, COVID and not uh, uh, taking that much notice of things like um, adherence to medication, um, underlying conditions, as as the. As, as COVID went along and as, as we, we learned more and as we knew more, so things started to change. But Dudu also alluded to uh, the camps that um, unhoused people were removed to in the initial phases. And then it becomes very difficult for organizations like Triangle are or service organizations to be able to Continue to track patients because people were being, not patients, people, people were being moved around from place to place and it was becoming very difficult to maintain contact. That has happened for us throughout uh, the COVID pandemic um, with clients. And I want to highlight particular older clients um, um, in in our case um, who were moved from, for example, um, isolation facilities into hospitals into field hospitals so you're moving people around the COVID uh, system who also have other underlying um, issues and it makes it really difficult to to track and trace people. Um, The last thing well I, I also want to highlight another thing that Dudu says and I think one can then begin to see how many marginalized communities have similar um, challenges and for similar reasons. So um, at Triangle Project, our um, constituents and people that we serve are not all in one place. Um, it's a, some, of, some people are, are um, you know, across the province, uh, spread widely across the province, Um, also up in the northern cape and the southern cape so it was how do we provide the level of services that we need to to all of those who access our services throughout this period and that means all of our services nutrition counseling so it it uh it it um gave us um a what we needed was to bring on more people we needed to bring bring on board those people that we had trained as community care workers to provide care. In some cases, it was palliative care, end-of-life care, um, care in the homes. Um, In some cases, it was needing additional Xhosa and Zulu speaking um, therapists, which we managed to bring online. Um, so that we could cover it? And then how did we provide very um, concrete things like nutrition to to our groups in rural areas? Um, and then the last thing I want to say um, in terms of appreciation and understanding um, the challenges faced is that, um, and I think this very much speaks to what Dudu was saying, is that... Um, conventional means of support that exist for heterosexual persons and cisgender persons even, but um, families and, and churches and other kind of structures that would be supportive of of people um, generally in society are often not there for, for LGBTI people, um, for sex workers um, and, and, and sweat and triangle share, uh, you know, uh, many clients use both of the services. So um, those those um, conventional um, structures of support that would be there um, in, in, a, in a very heteronormative society are not in existence often for, for LGBTI people. And I just want to end by saying, because I know uh, some people are on the call, but I think um, Marion also spoke to this. This has been one of the great things uh, for us over this time is the partnerships that we forged. In some cases, they may seem unconventional, but um, we have so valued, um, you know, the SRJC, which we are part of, um, Judy, uh, Sister Judy Renape, who will do the close, who's been unbelievably helpful. Um, certain people in the Department of Health, um, and, and Doctors Without Borders who have assisted with training, um, some of our peer um, educators and community care workers, and just the, the solidarity amongst organizations and individuals within uh, the, the health system has been amazing. And we thank you very much for that. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Sharon. And Sharon, could you also let us know, do you have a website um, that you can drop in the box? Um, are you? Do you have any... Um Fundraising options. Yes. So I will, um, I will tell will us put, about that a bit. Yes, so I'll hand over to Khaladi. Yeah. So
2: I'll put that in the box. Um, We have um, a, a campaign called Unlocking Love During Lockdown. And the reason is for all the reasons I've told you, that everything has increased exponentially. So when, for example, in usual times, because none of these services are unique to COVID for Triangle. These are services that were always offered. So we've always had a nutrition program, for example, but whereas we uh had funding uh, monthly to reach a 100 people uh, in, nutrition, in the nutrition program, we are now um, reaching upward of 500 a month. So um, it wasn't something that we were ever prepared for or prepared to go on this length of time for. So we have Unlocking Love During Lockdown and I will put that in the chat box. And I will also uh, uh, encourage people to go onto Triangle's Facebook page. Uh, we post regularly on there. Thank you very much for that, Marianne.
0: Thanks so much, Sharon, um, and um, if folks are able to, if they want to, you can start dropping questions into the chat box. I understand that Khaladi is um, struggling to get connectivity, are you on, Khaladi? Yes, fantastic. Can um, Welcome to you from Rustenburg, um, please tell us how you're doing. Yes, um, I'm on now, finally. <laughs> Welcome. It's fantastic to have you after a full day's work as a clinical provider. Thank you so much for your time.
3: No, thank you for inviting me, Marion.
0: So, Kaladi, um, perhaps you can answer the questions that um we can ask. You know, so what is how has COVID affected your work and your peers, um, in Rustenburg? Um what have been your greatest challenges? And um, what would you like those that are here um attending to understand about um your the conditions in what you work and to appreciate about the kinds of things that you come up against? So maybe if you could just speak to those questions, please.
3: Okay, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, I things things uh, thanks for the opportunity, uh, Marina. I think since uh, uh, the lockdown, we has uh, started with uh, with our activities, especially around safe abortion services and family planning. Uh, the, from actually the beginning, where we noted that uh, when the, the the lockdown started, where facilities were being uh, not really closed, uh, they were decongesting facilities, where especially in hospital in the hospitals around where. Elective procedures were being cancelled uh, by the doctors, and then in p- some of the facilities where they saw safe termination of pre- uh, pregnancy as elective procedures, and then were were being cancelled. There was about two to three weeks where it was cancelled, where because uh, second trimesters especially were seen as elective procedures because it was done in the hospital and with the plan of decongesting the hospital and having beds available for COVID patients. That's one of the first challenges that we came across with during the lockdown. And uh, we managed to go back to those facilities and then we discussed with the management of the facilities you know, of, about the importance of safe abortion and, and also access to safe abortion care for, for our patients that actually come to the facilities. And eventually, we managed to speak with the facility managers. And then finally, they said, okay, no, uh, we can, uh, safe abortion was allowed again. And the most recent one that we've been coming across, especially the past month, where we had providers that tested positive for COVID and uh, having a special form, how many facilities? three facilities. And each facility has uh, one, uh, one, one provider. And there, those providers, unfortunately, tested positive for COVID. And then we were in a situation that we, uh, the entire, all the services had to come to a standstill in those facilities. And we had, in the past week, uh, cause I was doing the, I was actually booking the patients. We had about 40 women that uh, needed second trimester to be done from all the facilities which we were booking. And then this past week we had to, myself and the doctor that we work with, uh, actually had to book all 40 of those patients for this week for the procedures to be done. Because if it went by, we knew that, you know what, if we let it wait for another two, three weeks, that it will, they will eventually go over 20 weeks and we will not be able to help them. And the other thing that that we we, we found that is a challenge, especially the now with the implementing of social distancing within the facilities, in one of our clinics, we were able to do about... 20 procedures at 21st trimester, let's say 15 first trimesters and five second trimesters a daily. So with the restrictions that were implemented, obviously with social distancing and number of people allowed uh, in a facility, we had to drop it down to six procedures that we can do uh, a day, and that led to a backlog. Like even now till this day, we we've got a backlog of patients that uh, in need of the service. So. The best what we currently doing now is basically we make sure if a woman is coming to request safe abortion care that minimum at least that an ultrasound is done and then obviously if they are above nine weeks uh, we book them for 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 a day. But what uh, most challenging is that most of the women they come expect with expectation that the, the the abortion will be done on the same day and some we have to book the furthest one which we booked uh, today. It's uh, I think it's the second week of September that's uh, see with the number of people that are coming and requesting, so yeah those are the challenges that we've been facing, and then we with that we're also trying to implement uh, self managed abortions up to twelve weeks, and we've been in dis- discussions with the uh, National Department of Health on having self managed abortions in the in the facilities up to twelve weeks, but that also has been it's ongoing discussions we haven't really won that battle as yet. But that's one thing that we're planning to implement. That you know, uh, facilities should have self-managed abortions, even at primary healthcare level. That uh, that uh, healthcare professionals can give uh, a medical abortion up to twelve weeks. So yeah, that's what uh, has been happening in in, in 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 around the northwest, and uh, we've been involved in. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for your insights, Khaladi. Sister Judy, it's um it's great to know that you've been on since the beginning. How have things been for you? And um, I know that you've been absolutely central to, um, being a provider and a, a point of contact to folks in Triangle and um folks in Sweat um, and a huge resource as a provider to the SRJC, um. Can you let us know how things are going Um, as somebody
4: in the coalface in the Western Cape? Thank you, Judy. Hi, everyone, and thank you so much for this opportunity and for everyone who's actually joined. I can just say that this has actually been the worst time of my nursing career, um, the Uh, COVID-19, because so many changes has actually happened. our programs actually had to come to a standstill. Okay, all I, I, I'm a, oh, to all those that don't know me. I'm a, a professional nurse. I'm a nurse trainer for the um, Department of Health in the Western Cape, and I'm also an abortion provider and also mentor people that are doing um, providing abortion services. So, because COVID-19 had to be prioritized, we actually had to stop all our programs with regard with regard to. Um, sexual reproductive health services and um, um, abortion services. So um, most of our services, like Kaladi had said, we also had to decant um, our, f- our facilities because we couldn't allow people to come to the facilities. And the biggest challenge was the messaging that went into through to the public that they should actually stay, stay at home was actually the most damaging part because then women were not accessing the services because it was said that you only access the service when you're feeling sick. And this message was actually communicated throughout everybody in such a way that uh, um, women were actually turned down in some of our facilities by the gate already, by the security. So it was actually a challenge. So was us having to prioritise on COVID, it was actually double work for us because I would be doing, we would be doing work with COVID into screening and testing and also trying to make sure that we, whichever women that were actually brave enough or that could actually access our services would actually gain access into our facility. So that was actually a challenge. And it was actually sad for people that um, probably didn't know anybody within the system, you wouldn't be able to, for example, contact me and say, Sister Judy, I'm standing outside, I can't go in for me to actually communicate with the people inside. So that was actually a big challenge. And um, I'm not sure if I could say because the department was so overwhelmed with COVID because it's new and everything. It was only realized halfway when we were like, for example, in April already that the data for child health and maternal health was actually down. And then only it was communicated that, oopsie, we need people to actually bring in their children for immunizations. We need to tell the women out there to actually come in for, um, their contraceptive methods, and they should actually uh, um, uh, access uh, any abortion services or SRH um, services that they needed at the facilities. And at that time, I think um, a lot more damage was actually done um, to communities out there. So uh, this was actually said. So, um, We've worked hard. We've got a lot of uh, very dedicated providers. We've worked hard um, into making sure that um, the women get to know out there. And the SRJC was also helpful because when, when we saw that the, the, the data was going down, we were also communicating to say, please help us out, make people out there, know that services are available and they can actually come in and access our services. And um, what to do, and Sharon also mentioned already when our services were not ailing because of um, COVID, we had challenges in servicing um, sex workers and service um other minority groups like the LGBTI and so on. So it's actually even more, it's actually worse now because they can't gain access and if they don't know anybody within that facility, it's even more challenging. And on the issues of gender-based violence, it's even worse. I was actually asked by one of the facilities um, in our district last week to actually come and sensitise the staff in the facility to manage clients who are experiencing gender-based violence. And it was it was actually a shock because it's at only at that time that we realized that the healthcare providers didn't even know where to refer people that are coming into facilities that are experiencing gender-based violence. They didn't know safe, safe houses. They didn't know where to go. And um, in a way, I am a little bit... Um, Saying thankful to, to to COVID because a whole lot of things are highlighted. We're realizing now more the gaps that we've had and things that people had to deal with, and they actually um, le- we actually learning from that because um, it was before it was someone else's problem, and suddenly when people come in, they realize that we actually need to act. So that has been a challenge, and um, um, the the fact that. We are having this COVID issue. I think nobody even takes note of the fact that our our contraceptive stocks are are not going up, Um, the fact that people are not coming to access their medication. Um, I must say in the primary healthcare sector in our district, we have worked very very hard even though it was very challenging we've tried to deliver some of the medication but because people are coming from far and wide and because people couldn't move it was a challenge we even in our district we even had um an uber service that was delivering medication but then we come to the place and then we don't find the person and now we have all these packets of medication of people who are not accessing the medication because they still have that message that they shouldn't access the facilities because of the scare of being infected or or, or, or spreading the COVID um, virus. So um, I must say that um, COVID has really, really changed a lot. But um, despite that, we're still very, working very, very hard and it's very hard on um, the... Healthcare providers, because everybody is scared, and 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 suddenly we realize that healthcare providers have been so burdened. We have a lot that are, are, are having um, comorbidities that that are actually suffering, and that we have had facilities having to close. In one area, we had a facility closing, and um, while we were actually doing testing and screening on of COVID at the whole. It used to pain me to see the women and children outside that clinic knowing that they cannot access family planning or, or even immunizations to um, to the mothers and and, and the children. So that was actually said, and there was nothing that could be done because the health care providers were infected with COVID. Facilities had to be closed. They had to be uh, um, decontaminated. So COVID has actually turned our world upside down. But I must say, despite all that, we have a lot of hardworking people, a lot of people who care. And now it's almost like it's only now that people are listening when we start, when we say to them, Hey, um SRH needs to be looked into. But in all the at, at the moment we have the, the facilities that I've been monitoring, I've got four in our district that the, the abortion providers there are very, very good. They administer family planning. They are there. I mentor them and I go to them. So um, we're getting somewhere, but very little but, but all I know is that we've got a lot more women out there and it's, op- it's probably going to strike us when um, this disaster is over that a lot more damage has been done because our facilities are practically empty. People have got other priorities now. People need food, people need work, people do are scared also to uh, uh, contact the virus. So with, throughout all the lockdowns there's been challenges and people um, actually having other priorities instead of having to come in, forgetting that it's actually causing more harm. So we're probably going to have a lot more children that are going to be abandoned, a lot more women that are going to go backstreet um, and have abortions, a lot more diseases, for example, TB and HIV because people are not um, accessing, people are not um, adhering to their medications anymore. And um, the fact that because we are decanting our services and we are having a lot more healthcare providers that have comorbidities, some of them are actually working at home, so we have less hands that can actually offer um, SRH and abortion services in our facilities.
0: Thanks so much, Sister Judy. Um, that gives a real sense of uh, and texture um, what's happening at the coalface. Um, um, there's a question in the chat box. Um, Khiladi, I don't know if you can, um, access the chat box. Um, Kerry Cullinan, a journalist is asking, um, do women in Rustenburg have to wait until the second week of September to get abortions? What if they're over the legal limit? I don't think that's exactly what you were saying, but maybe if you can clarify Khaladi.
3: Yeah. So what, what I'm saying with that is that basically what we we are having more women requesting uh, termination of pregnancy, and in t- terms of uh, booking patients, we are we 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 book according to priority now. If you're about 18, 19 weeks, definitely before the end of next week, the procedure will be done. But then we get those that come, and then there are 14 weeks today, and then it means we can still. It's, I, I I see it as causing even harm by delaying it. We can delay it for another two weeks before actually doing the procedure and prioritizing the one that is eighteen, nineteen weeks. So, with the second trimesters, our priority is always the ones between eighteen and twenty weeks. It's a priority within that very same week that you've come. But if it's less, around thirteen, fourteen weeks, yes, we we are booking patients. Some are booked up till the second week of uh, of September, as I, as I mentioned.
0: Thanks. Um, thanks. Are you covered,
5: Kerry? Yes, thanks. I wrote in the chat box. Thanks very much.
0: Oh, sorry.
5: Okay. Uh, great. Yes. Um,
0: I wanted to ask um, folks, um, the floor is now open. Are there any other questions that people have? I see that um, there are lots of um, folks that have joined us from outside South Africa. Um, Kristen, it's great to see you from the States. What questions do folks have? Um, What more would you like to hear from um, Dudu, from Sharon, from Khaladi, and from Judy? So maybe if I can ask some more questions um, uh, to the panelists now. Um, Dudu, can you tell us a little bit more about sex workers' challenges in accessing very particular sexual and reproductive health services? I know this is something that we have worked on. And um, given criminalization, what about access to condoms? What about access to contraceptives? Do they have access to all options? Um, what about access to abortions? Um, Dudu, can you talk to that, please?
1: Okay. Thank you. Thank you, mary um, uh I will speak before the, the, the lockdown and COVID before it comes in as a disaster in South Africa. Um, sexual reproductive health issues was not even recognized. That is a, one of the challenges of the sex workers even before. The most, um, I think, also resources that our the, and, and, and organization and projects that was available with sex workers, it was uh, most HIV and treatment and TB. But there was not really specific uh, project was looking at it in a sexual reproductive health. After we formalize ourselves, and then we starting to looking at what really we need. Um, the first issue of the of the services that was a challenge is to access um, abortion, and also the second one that mothers identified that it was an issue to get contraception, and then after that it was mental health and then the fourth one was uh, we were looking it in terms of the treatment of 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 like children of those who are affected by hiv so in sexual reproductive health we find that it was very challenging it was not easy for sex workers like to go to the hospital or go to clinic to find like a abortion. but since that Sweat has mothers for the future, it's very easy for them to just call us and call helpline and ask us for services, like I need to do this, I wanna do this, I decide to do this, I make choice for that. Then we able to support, but we not only supporting them to make sure that uh, they doing, they get the services, but we also supporting because even after they getting the services, we have checkups that how are you doing, are you okay? So. How do I, how do we get those, but through partners, we partner with sexual reproductive health. We also partner with oh, sister Judy that make us, our work easier for sex workers to make sure that they are doing it. And remember that through that of the criminalization, the stigma and discrimination, make a lot sex workers to not access services because of they are scared or they know in their clinic, so we move. We me and sister to be able to make sure and and, and, and sexual reproductive justice college, and we make sure that if she's staying in Kylie Church, she can able to move to doing it in Victoria. So it's a it's a very it's a very challenging um uh it's very it's a very challenge to get those services, but for now, through partners, they assess those services. But it, during the lockdown, I don't want to lie, and I'll speak very <laughs> the truth. I've been contacting Sister Judy also one day. There was someone that wanted to uh, help to get help, but Sister Judy respond very very quick, and then we support her, and she did, and it was successful. Uh, what I can say to people, everyone who attending this webinar is to really looking to everyone to come up, to come forward with any services like legal services, sexual reproductive services, um, and the health services that they must come forward for, to help and assist sex workers anytime, because sex workers is still a challenge to assist those services.
0: Thanks. Um, Thanks, Dudu. Um, Lucy, can you um, talk to your question, please?
6: Hi, yes, thank you. Sorry, I, I wrote it down, but I just uh, thank you for, for your amazing presentations. Uh, start my video. Oh, <laughs> I don't look very well. <laughs> um, um,
0: I, yeah, I mean, it's,
6: I'm. Lucy, uh, can
0: you just introduce yourself, sorry, and say where you're from, oh. by the way?
6: Okay, well, I'm Lucy and I am a sexual and reproductive health nurse and I work with Doctors Without Borders, mainly looking at the healthcare access for key populations uh, in the southern Africa region um, and um, yeah, I'm a colleague of Khaladi uh, who was just speaking there. Amazing that he got, he got to connect because connection is not so easy sometimes. Anyway, um, I was listening very carefully to Judy, um, uh, where she was saying that knowing the provider of services in the community is key. And people, you know, providers go down with COVID or may not have COVID, but, you know, have to do a bit of sort of isolation or, or quarantine and then people stop accessing the service either because they know that that service provider the face you know the friendly service provider is there or not there and so i'm i'm wondering if any of you have already or are already using uh, alternative ways of keeping on the engagement of of people to or, or tracking people so that they so that they stay in safety, you know, that they're still, I don't know, accessing their medication or if they need a refill or or a wall. So telemedicine or telecounseling, all those sort of services, if you are doing these services during the times of COVID. That's my question. Thank you. Is it clear? Yes. Yes, 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 Lucy.
0: Um, well, I guess the question then is to Judy and Hladi. Hladi, you kind of answered it to say that you 're going to be starting to do some telemedicine um options, and I think that um, that 's fantastic uh, uh, m s i started uh, to do that as well and I see dr Dlamini's on um, to um, from m s i been um piloting that um, uh this is really an area of development and, and um, are folks talking about it in the province? Um, how, how are we going to move ahead? Because this clearly is is the next step. Um, WHO is, um, you know, basically talking about self-managed abortions.
5: Yeah, I, I, kept, um, I
6: could hear Dudu also talking there, because I think that maybe the sort of knowing the face of your, supporter, provider, it could be somebody like a nurse, but of course it also could be a lay cadre who knows how to provide services. So I wonder, that's it, if if who has begun to use these mechanisms to ensure that people continue being safe, their health, safety, yeah.
3: Can I just add on to something there?
5: Please do, please do.
3: Yeah, uh, it's just something that uh, in Rustenburg, actually, and uh, and also in around MLO, which I've noticed, like uh, there are private practitioners that are offering self-managed abortions, like uh, professional doctors. I've, I've heard and I've seen, and I know of a few, that when women come and request for a safe abortion, they do, they tell them, even if I've seen cases where women about six or 16 weeks and then the doctor explained the medication to her, this is how you take it. When you're at home, you expel. This is how you're going to dispose of the fetus. If you can't, you bring it back to the practice, and then he's going to go dispose of it. So it's something which is being practiced, but people are not really open up about it. That's uh, one thing that I've no, I, I've noted about it. you um, Lani. Okay. Um, can you hear me? Hello,
4: go for Judy. Oh, okay. Um during this period, we've actually um, used quite a bit of our community healthcare workers and um, the department has also um, employed um, community healthcare worker trainer. So um, I think for the future, it'll work. We just need people at the top to get to this understanding. I think in, in my district, people are still... Uh, um, our our uh, um, decision policy makers are still a bit wary about um, telemedicine because at the moment we are having big big challenges with having to even trace people that have COVID um, uh, um, to 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 get them into isolation places because we can't uh, find them in their. Um, on their cell phones and we, we, we get into areas like Masipumelele where there are there are no addresses. I've been there personally. We walk all day and we cannot so, uh, access um, the people. So uh, I think it, in communities that can manage the telemedicine, it'll actually work very well because um, those that actually have access to telephones and so on can they can actually understand, we can communicate with them. So it becomes a little bit easier. But I must say that um in the Western Cape, the um the department has actually used quite a bit of the community health health care workers we have a lot of npos that have come on board we have a lot of retired nurses that are actually helping us and it's actually been lovely working with them because they know these communities they know where to go and we've actually even used the same community health care work uh, workers to actually be a link between between us and the community. So I think in the future, we could we could work that route because community, the communities trust the health, the, the community care workers that are with them. Therefore, we can communicate with them. And if we actually do educate them and, and give them the rules and link them up with us, I think it will actually work because um, accessing in facilities, it's, it's actually quite a bit of a challenge. So that will actually um, be okay. But the biggest challenge that we are having before COVID and even now, we do lack support in SRH and abortion services. So um, we still need policymakers to be full on. We don't need just a handful of people standing in the forefront because we are not decision makers. We have a lot of facilities now that are not functional and nobody's actually pushing anybody for these services to run. And yet we have people that are trained, that have the facilities, that have the medication, but people have their own reasons why they cannot actually um, um, offer the services. So we still need a lot of um, uh, um, uh, um, manpower or people that can actually make sure that people are accountable, they offer the services that are actually supposed to be offered at the facilities. Thanks, Judy. I I see that Kerry's got a, a
0: question around um some work that she's doing on obstetric violence. Kerry, do you want to talk to that?
5: Thanks, Marion. Um I put a long story in the chat. Basically we I work for open democracy and um starting my video. And we've just done a whole lot of research into um how women are treated, particularly during childbirth, and we found that in 45 countries um, a whole lot of really traumatic um, experiences that women, women had, including deaths in particularly Uganda and, and Kenya, people who were either turned away from facilities or they, they, um, they couldn't get transport because of lockdown um, regulations. But we didn't we didn't find much in South Africa because not much is being reported and it might be linked to what Sister Judy is saying about people just not um these things are happening but nobody's nobody's telling us so if there if there are any of any such stories that people have or um could share with um with me confidentially and so on i'd I'd be very keen to 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 follow up on on any kinds of violations of patients' rights or things. So, um, sexual and reproductive health services becoming really difficult for women to access during this time. Thanks. Thanks, Kerry. Um, and I, I do we have
0: any folks from the Eastern Cape? Because the the the, the story f- that was covered in the um, the Daily Maverick uh, about a week ago about from Livingston Hospital showing the kind of collapse of maternity services. If there's any other folks on the ground that could speak to that or have any further information um, so Kerry could expand on that. Um, I I want to talk a little bit more about the the options of um, telemedicine and just to let folks know that the Sexual Reproductive Justice Coalition has just joined the MAMA Network, which is a regional, international group um uh based um in a a partnership coming out of tika in kenya um and uh we're really um excited to be looking forward to hosting training um and looking at uh starting an abortion hotline um with some of the partners within the srjc um, and particularly looking at this as a moment of opportunity to really look through what that work might mean as a feminist network. So this is very exciting, and if you want to be part of that, um, please do let us know. Um, I um, And I'm very glad that we've got Fonsina um, from Nairobi on the call, who we're gonna be working with um, uh, in setting this up. Um, welcome, Fonsina. I want to ask if there are any other questions or, or issues um, that that folks want to talk to. Um, but before folks come forward with that, Sharon, I wanted to ask if you could perhaps take us back to that really awful time um, when the Strunfontein camp was happening and um, many um, folks um, that you serve um, were were moved there and um, your nurses had to go and care and kind of work out what was going on. Um, I don't know if that's been recorded or if that, those stories have been told. Um, the horrendous stories of the Strandfontein camp generally are known, but I don't know in particular about what that has meant for queer unhoused folks. Um, thanks Sharon.
2: So it was a terrible, um, um, I don't even want to call it an experiment. It it was just uh, perhaps the province thought they were doing the right thing, um, but it landed up being a disaster. So for those who are not from the country or from the province, what happened was that the the Western Cape um, rounded up Uh, unhoused people and took them to a camp um, which resembles a, a, a really large dumping ground, I guess one could call it, and it was unbelievable to think that they would have thought that this was a good idea in the face of all the messaging that was coming out early on when none of us knew really what we were dealing with. Um, but we, all the messaging was around physical distancing um, and you had hundreds of people right on top of each other. So in the initial phases, our um, our nurse in particular was on the ground and at the site uh, all the time um, because people were taken there with, um, you know, some had no medication, some had a couple of days of medication um, And because all of the focus was just on COVID, um, there was very little attention paid to things like diabetes or um, ART or uh, medicine for for hypertension. Um, And so initially we had no trouble with our nurse being able to be there and have access and to um, report back to partner organizations that had um, service users there in the camp, um so uh we we you know the 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 continuum of care because i think that's really important particularly for marginalized clients that we know where people are and how to reach them um and then it broke in the media uh, i guess about 2 weeks in it broke in the media what the circumstances in the camp were like Um, And then our uh, nurse, who was apparently highly recognizable by Red Bucky, um, was then stopped uh, from going into the camp. Um, And the thinking initially was that uh, they wanted to keep any um, NPOs, um, uh, people on the ground who were working out of the site uh, so that uh, I guess it limited reporting. Um, so, although she was physically stopped from going in, we could main, maintain contact with with um, with service users of ours that were in the camp uh, via phone and, and topping up their data to allow uh, contact to be maintained with them and to ascertain what the needs were and to set up a way in which we could uh, meet at the fence and drop medication or, or drop additional nutrition for those. Um, who needed that. Um, But it was a truly horrific experience um, for those in the camp. And yes, um, some of those stories will most certainly um, be documented and and are being documented currently, um, because I think those were the worst of times. And I think there are great lessons that can be learned about that uh, during periods of COVID, and then if we have a look at what's happening in Kenya at the moment on Block 13 at Kakuma Camp, um, with with LGBTI refugees, uh, it, it, it's a similar context, and it's horrible. It was horrible. It remains horrible, and I think for a lot of people, um, really um, a traumatic time. Um, and I just want to say something else about that because it's easy. Uh, to call people homeless, (laughs) Uh, which is why I prefer the term unhoused. Um, Because people, and Dudu will attest to this too, uh, many people who we serve have lived in communities together for years, some 15, 20 years in the same place. Um, And so although they live out in the in the open and and unhoused and in pieces of felt and under bridges, they don't consider themselves homeless. They consider that their homes. And so when they move to spaces like this, and this often happens even without COVID, is that the city will decide they're doing a cleanup and they'll just move everybody and away goes all, you know, the little that you had is taken and so is your medication is gone and your ID and, and everything else. So um, it makes people exceptionally vulnerable, um, and it certainly did in, in this time and continues to do, although the levels have, have eased a little and people have been able to move around. When people couldn't move around, for example, um, there was little thought that went into the fact that um, the nearest tap may have been three kilometers away, and how do you take your medication if you can't walk because if you've got, if you walked, you got a fine. So we're also sitting with 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 people who are have got notices to appear in court, and and one is actually coming up uh, before the end of this week, or I think tomorrow, um, of a thousand rand fine for for you know, going, moving around uh, and that's just within a short distance. And so I can't, uh, uh, you know, all the repercussions that have come from this and how systems that are already under incredible strain are going to cope with um, having uh, to to hear cases on people who moved 500 metres or a kilometre to go and get something Um, and that don't have a thousand rand, they don't even have ten rand. So, uh, you know, it's all these other repercussions that are going to have a knock-on effect and, and overload, already overloaded systems like hospitals, like day clinics and like courts. Yeah. Thanks, Sharon
0: um i'm sorry i missed this um mbali baduza had a question um for um dudu um mbali do you want to to talk to um criminalization and the protective duty mbali are you, would you like to ask your question or should i just read it to dudu um in the light of criminalization of so of sex work, what is the relationship between law enforcement, protective duties and sex workers? I can imagine it is not good at all. Dudu.
1: Um it's not um thank you. Thank you very much, my Ma- Marianne. Uh, it's not good at all. It's really it's not good at all. There is no any relationship between both because uh, even now during this lockdown we have uh, sex workers who died in 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 one of. The sex workers died in, in, in police station and we don't have there is no one who is responsible for that not yet even a case going forward for that and no and the sex workers who died in deban because of the police they were they they were after them they following the car and they wanna then they car happening car accident the sex workers was arrested during the Campaign of the GPV enough is enough in Devon. They were targeted and they put them in the in the in the van and they were fourteen in the one van. And those things it shows that really there is no any relationship between for them. But also there is still a more. Uh, of violation that is happening of sex workers that as they're experiencing from subs from metropolis even now in level in level we are in level three, but sex workers who are just going out they're still experiencing that um, about the about the result of the sex workers who are dying to update is that is that just that there is no perpetrators that already arrested for that. So um, I think that this is a it's not a new stories but it's uh, stories that have been happening under criminalization since then, when they're using these laws, repro- uh, who label sex workers as criminals. So criminalization has put sex workers more vulnerable into reporting cases, more cases, and taking, and, and Department of Justice not taking mm-hmm. serious of the criminalization of sex work. So during this disaster time, for sex workers really put them in high risk and put them more and more and more into the dangerous. But there is no ways that if now, we after this lockdown or after if we survive in this, we can let t- let it go like that. We need to get more support to advocate for decriminalization of sex work in South Africa because it's the v- only way that uh, sex workers can be able to exercise their rights as full citizens and able to... Uh, recognize as human beings and also able to recognize by labor laws so that they can able to look at how they're going to able to benefit in in South Africa because sex workers are really a hard workers but of each other people they do not um, looking at and take it serious, not only sex workers but there is sex workers who are LGBTQI plus person who doing sex work plus LGBTQI as, as, as specific, all of the marginalised group, we need to really look at the advocacy work and pushing for them to make sure that everyone is assessing human rights and justice in South Africa. Thank
0: you so much, Guru, um, for talking to that. Um, we we coming to the end. We've got about 20, uh, 10 minutes left. And so what I wanted to do... Um, if there are no more questions, I'm going to ask the panelists to each give um, some closing remarks, looking forward. Um, COVID is, is, these circumstances are going to be with us for a while. Um, people talk about the new normal, but I guess what has happened during COVID is, um, COVID has amplified. It's put a, a magnifying lens to the desperate inequalities and devastation of our social determinants of health. And in particular, the injustices that populations face in relation to their um, sexual and reproductive health or their sexual identity and, and gender uh, gender identities. So I've just heard from Lucy that Khalidi had to go because the patient in the next door room has just expelled and he needs to go and and help her. So that clearly talks to the need, um, the, the, the the backlog that is happening and how providers are essentially still working at kind of half past five um, in, in, in providing um, a continuum of care. So perhaps if we could start off with, um, with Sharon and then with Dudu and then with Judy, basically looking forward in the next year, what are you hoping for? What do you want people to know? Um, what should we be advocating for? One of the key messages that I've heard is for us to support you in advocating for our policy uh, providers and, and uh, policy makers and decision makers to be very clear on implementation and, and, in pl- and putting in place programmatic um, ways um, that, that make your life easier in, in implementing services. So, over to Sharon. And then there you go.
2: Um, So in closing, yes. I mean, what you just said is so true. And that is um, the inequalities. It's not to say, and and we all know they existed and uh, uh, were glaring before. And now I look like I'm sitting in the dark. Um, they are absolutely magnified tenfold now during this period, and so we will continue, um, uh, as we have always done, to uh, to place um, to place LGBTI um, and uh, uh, others at the centre of what should be a people-centred uh, health system, um, but really isn't, and. Um, and the point that that Sister Judy made, and others have made, and I am glad to, and uh, uh, really heartened to hear. Um, but honestly speaking, when I tell you that um, for us, uh, the work with Sister Judy and with others is 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 critical for us. And and you know, um, and, and uh, doctors without borders, Lucy also uh, asked this and touched on this, is that. When you know somebody specific like a sister Judy, like a sister Yvette Andrews, that you can call and say, I've got a patient, we're outside, she's she's terribly ill, they're not letting us in that we can contact. Um, and only then do you get responses. What about people who are sitting in Rustenburg or sitting in other areas who don't have that contact? But that's how we've always had to work is with, uh, with, key, with key people within different facilities in order to access services. So we will continue um, going on in, in the future to to continue to build relationships, to continue to have strong partnerships, even with one or two people within facilities or services, who we know um, our, the people that we serve are safe in their hands and that people can continue to get care. And in the meantime, we still advocate for inclusive and um, services for all people. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Sharon. Over to you, Dudu. Um, thank you.
1: Um, I will just asking and pleasing that uh, we will love everyone to... To support uh, the crime campaign, um, vocal in, in your advocacy work, including uh, the decriminalisation of sex workers and issues of marginalised groups. Um, also, understanding this uh, the the sex workers' issues and marginalised groups, uh, but also contribute as you can in in the organization that's working with marginalized group but if also you also in, interested to work with the marginalized group please engage with the organization who work with um, marginalized groups the last final word that I can say is um, please come forward because without partnership we will never ever able to support the marginalized group but through partnership we did able also to offer some of the services even though it's not those services available in all these partnerships are not available in all provinces but through partnership we did able to support each other i please also ask to come forward with providing such a um, health services, providing legal services, psychosocial services, all those resources we need it, all these services we need it so that we can able to support the poor and the vulnerable groups. I really thank you all the partners that they help and support, even we're not reaching under because it's very deep, we cannot able to reach everyone. But at least we're trying. We'll keep on trying, and we also keep on doing advocacy work and support these marginalized groups. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Dudu. and finally, Sister Judy. I
4: would just like to say that we really, really. This is my plea: we need to work together in collaboration with partners. And grow this movement because to me, it seems like we will not go anywhere if we do not have the support. Because within the Department of Health, which is so huge, which services quite a lot of people, it's very difficult when you only have a a handful of people that can fight. It's okay for me to fight in my district. But what about the woman that lives in Atlantis? What about the woman that lives, or anybody that needs the services in, in Stellenbosch? It's difficult. If she can't access services in my district, then it becomes a problem. So I feel that we need partners to actually push the department to become aware that we need to service a vulnerable communities, we need to service communities out there, um, with the, the the rightful services that they need, SRH, gender-based violence, it's actually a real problem because we cannot reach everybody. I'm, I'm overwhelmed all the time on my phone with pleas from all over, but I cannot intervene everywhere, especially when it is not within my district. So this is my... My biggest plea, because when we fight within the department, we are being told, Judy, you need to remember that um, uh, uh, getting involved in SRH and and gender-based violence and abortion services is not, the the the, core fun, the only core function of the department. We have chronic diseases. We have mental health and so on. But they f- actually forget that these people that are dealing with are also being affected by ment- mental health. They also have chronic diseases, and obviously they still need SRH services. They need um. Uh, services for STIs. We also need to embrace the vulnerable, com- vulnerable communities like the LGBTIQ, especially the young ones who exist in every district. And another thing, the reason why I'm pleading for partners to particularly get involved, it's actually it saddens me when I get to facilities where A healthcare provider don't even know that we have um, triangle project that exists. Uh, You know, they they, they don't know where are the safe houses. They don't know where to to refer people. And I feel so helpless because there's only so much that you can do. There's only so many people that you can reach, that you can make aware that outside the department, we have these services. You can refer, you can partner. It's not only a sister Judy that can speak to so-and-so outside, but we actually just need to get voices out there to get everybody to know that we can work with outside partners to actually reach all of our communities. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. And it's half past five. Um, And in bringing everything to a close, I, we had about 51 folks joining us. Thank you very much from, uh, lots of um from all over the place Um fantastic to see colleagues um from the continent um from ghana abina it's lovely to see you um and um members also in the states um that have moved on um this 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 grouping is thinking of having um a, a series of webinars. So if there are any particular questions or issues that you'd like to explore, or if you just would love to, I mean, I can I can sit and listen to Dudu and Sharon and Judy for, you know, listen to their experiences more and more and more. Um, if there are particular issues that you'd like to listen to, if you'd like us to continue this to do some more um, webinars, um, uh, we are also thinking of perhaps producing some podcasts um inbox us let us know but otherwise um i think it's time for a good cup of tea and thanks again for everybody's partnership i see we've got a huge amount of advocacy to do and a lot of work in pushing our governments to put things together thanks again bye-bye